with you. It's a blessing to have you here in this family. And I hope that uh, tonight, as we learn together the Word of God, that, that something more speaks to you. Uh, last August, as we were uh, journeying through Luke, we were only eight chapters in last August. It's now a year and some months after that, and so you can see at what pace we've gone. But last August, I taught... Um, one of my favorite passages so far in Luke. And for those of you guys who remember the passage, uh, it was in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 26, and it was the message where Jesus calms the storm. And for me, all of the passages through Luke so far have been very impactful, and I've changed my views on how I see the Gospel of Luke. But on that night, my friends, my heart was changed in a drastic way. You remember the story. Jesus tells his boys, get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And so they do that. And then this big squall comes on the lake and Jesus is sleeping and they wake him up and they say, Jesus, we're all going to drown, we're all going to die. And he wakes up and he calms the storm. And then he asks, in my opinion, one of the greatest questions in the Gospel of Luke. He says, where is your faith? You remember that that night the challenge was our response to the storms in our life reveal our communion with Christ. Our response to the storms in our life reveal our communion with Christ. He asked the disciples, where is your faith? Because he's interested in where their faith is amidst the storm. You and I, it's sometimes easy four and five and six months out of a chaotic situation to be able to look back and to say, oh God, What a God. He was working all along. I could see His plan all along, but not amidst it. So friends, here's the beauty of tonight. Can I tell you? Tonight, I want each of us to get lost in this story. Because that story in Luke chapter 8 was about the disciples. Tonight, this story is not focused on the disciples. It's focused on our Savior. And friends, there's so much to learn tonight. There's so much to look in at this passage and say, what a God. And so here's my prayer, alright? There's no, there's no puppets, alright? There's no antics. There's, you know, tonight it's us and the Word of God praying that He'll reveal it to us, that each of us will get lost in this amazing night. The passion portrays it. Many scripts have portrayed it. But tonight I pray that you and I get there. You're not going to be able to see your Bibles, but on the screen, follow along in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. The Scripture says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and His disciples followed Him. Now, this is brilliant, my friends. He goes out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Real quick, so we have a location understanding. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or if you know Jewish geographical situations, you know this, that the Temple Mount sits up high. That's why they call it a mount, okay? So the temple is kind of up on this large mountain and it goes down through the Kidron Valley and then it goes up to the Mount of Olives. You remember at the triumphal entry, Jesus makes the opposite path, all right? Down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley and up to the Temple Mount. This is a huge place for Christ. Why? Because we saw at the beginning of this Passion Week, the last week of Christ, that every night He was retiring where? Every night He was going to the Mount of of olives. Now this is interesting because at the beginning of the Passover meal, do you remember who he sent? He sent two people to make preparations, Peter and who else? Anyone? Peter and John. 
He sends two. Now, why does he send two on the Passover night? Because he doesn't want Judas to know where they will be. Because it's not time for the betrayer yet. Jesus goes out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On this night, nothing is unusual. On this night, he goes directly to the place where Judas the betrayer will know where he is. Our Savior, the Christ, marches directly in to the breath, to the mouth of the storm. He knows what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Luke doesn't talk about, but the other Gospels do. He knows what's going to happen on this night as He goes into the Mount of Olives. He knows, friends. One, very earlier, he, he doesn't want anyone to know where the Passover is because He still has to teach, He still has to communicate. But on this moment, in this night, He goes right into the breath, into the mouth of the storm. What a God. What a Savior that is so content and sold on the will of God that knowing what the garden would hold, He heads there. Now this is going to start an interesting parallel for us between two gardens. And I'm not going to talk a lot about it now, but there's two parallel gardens throughout the Scriptures. You have in Genesis, uh, the early parts of Genesis, you have the Garden of what? The Garden of Eden. And on this night you have the Garden of Gethsemane. It's probably around midnight. We set our Easter calendar because there's a full moon or around the moon. And so it would have been a close or near or at a full moon. They're in a garden, all right, that's uh, literally, guess somebody's literally called a, a, an olive press or an oil press because there's just olive trees everywhere. So that's the scene, my friends. Jesus and his disciples heading right into the mouth of the storm, verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Unbelievable. The place, again, the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, who's the them? Now this is interesting, stay with me here. There is three disciples who are always closer to Christ. Uh, You can say that Jesus had favorites. I, I don't know if you want to put it that way, but he had a close ring of circles. He discipled the one who was Peter, the three who was Peter, James, and John, and then the rest of the disciples. So here's what happened. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus comes into the garden and He leaves eight of them towards the entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane. He comes in a little bit farther and there He leaves Peter, James, and John. And then here at verse, we'll see that Jesus goes into the inmost parts of the garden. So He tells Peter, James, and John, at least maybe all the disciples, stay here and pray that you will not fall into temptation. So already, what do we do? We sit back, we see Jesus marching into a storm, and we say, okay, Jesus, what do you have to teach us? What I have to teach you, Jesus would say is, is that you must understand that inevitable temptation demands pleading prayer. Inevitable temptation demands pleading prayer. And friends, can I tell you something about the temptation that is all around us? Is it is prevalent? And can I get an amen at just the idea that it's inevitable? Temptation comes so quickly. 
And Jesus tells these guys at this moment, pray so that you will not fall into that temptation. Now the question for me is what temptation? Like what, what does He not want them to fall into? Well, something brilliant takes place in Matthew chapter 16. And I, I can't even... This, seriously, in the last couple of days, I just had this... God has just opened my eyes to this. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 16, or Matthew chapter 16, Peter and Jesus are having a conversation. And Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to have to suffer, that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to die, and that he's going to be raised to life. And do you guys remember what Peter says? Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Not you. None of these things must happen. Jesus' response is what? Any, any of you guys remember? He says, Get behind me. What? Get behind me, Satan. This man named Cephas, who he had changed his name to Peter because he was going to be the rock, he calls him Satan. And then he goes on to say, you are a stumbling block for me. Listen. Because you have on your mind the things of this world and not the things of God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is talking about his death. Peter says, no, this must not happen. And Jesus says, you have on your mind the things of this world and not the, things of, uh, not the things of God. So to say, get behind me, Satan, is Jesus' way of saying, I must go to the cross. And any potential distraction from carrying out the plan and will of God is a temptation that I don't want. Can you guys agree with me? And so it's possible amidst all of the temptations, that in this moment, he's telling Peter, James, and John, pray that you will not be a distraction for my going to the cross. Unbelievable moments. And then we think of passages like Luke chapter 11, verse 4, at the end of the disciples asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. And you remember what he says, and lead us not into temptation. And then in the Lord's Prayer that we say, but deliver us from evil, everybody, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right? Just an unbelievable understanding now. Jesus is saying, pray that you will not be a distraction to the will of God. Now it kind of puts the storms in our life into perspective, doesn't it? Put yourself here in this moment. Friend, enter your name in the blank, right? Pray that you will not fall into temptation amidst the storms and chaos of your life. Pray that you will not be a distraction of how God's glory is to be shown through what you see this wretched thing happening. Because anyone would look at this moment knowing the betrayer is coming and say, like, what, what kind of guy would just march right into all this? And he's telling Peter, back in the early parts of Matthew, get behind me because you can't be a distraction for what I came to do. I came to be the Passover lamb. I came to give it all up. And any attempt at a distraction is not of God, but of this world. Friends, think of how we're responding to the storms and the chaos in our life. Is it possible that because our communion with Christ often comes intensely after the storm and not before and amidst it, that we're missing an opportunity to be a voice of the triumph of Christ? 
Is it possible that right amidst the most ugly situation in your life, that's to be the time of, of greatness, of the, the greatness of Christ just spewing from your soul? Friends, we're not praying. We're not pleading, knowing that temptation and storm will come. We're praying like we have all the time in the world and all of the cares of this world. Anybody? So Jesus teaches us here that inevitable temptation demands pleading prayer. Verse 41, He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, which to me is kind of funny. Uh, it's like, whose arm are we talking about here, you know? Jesus' arm, clearly much better than anyone else, you know? John Elway was great. Jesus, you know, he's like throwing it around the world. You know what I'm saying? So about a stone's throw, like is this talking about the gun of Christ, right? Or is this a, I think this is just a, a figure of speech and a way to, to talk about a, a few yards away. But there's some distance here. So he leaves Peter, James, and John, and he goes about a stone's throw beyond them. And look at this. He knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Whoa, 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 whoa. I've often heard this moment romanticized, have you? And we see like a lot of pictures and a lot of different uh, movies and different things about this moment as Jesus begins to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, not my will, but your wills be done. Can I just explain a couple things to you, first of all? The, the typical ancient Mesopotamian Jewish way of prayer, the posture was not to kneel. It was to stand. I know that we've um, now kind of adapted, even from this moment, this idea of kneeling and humility before the Father. But the ancient Jewish way, the typical posture, even though kneeling was a part of it, was to stand. And so the moment that Jesus kneels, it's this moment of complete Surrender. It's a mo- listen. It's a moment of desperation. This is a different moment for Jesus. In this moment, friends, stay with me. In this moment, we see the brilliance of Jesus as God and Jesus as man. Anybody else? Because we look at this passage and we read the prayer and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not not my will, but your, yours be done. There's this weird mix here of the humanity of Christ and the God part of Christ. Now, now, first of all, let's talk about a few things from Scripture. The human piece of Christ. What do we see that's human in Christ? We see Him hunger. We see Him thirst. We see Him grow weary. We see Him in the early parts of Luke literally growing. We see that He has a human body, alright? We see that He dies. We see that He bleeds. There's all of these characters, like those, right? I'm describing you. Like that's all things that we experience. You go through those. But then in the Gospel of John, listen to this, this is beautiful. The Gospel of John records all of these I am statements about Christ. So we have the real human piece of Jesus. And then we have this God piece of Jesus. I am the bread of life. Like we don't say that, do we? Like... You're talking with your friends and you're, I am the, no. Like this is a God statement. Listen, I am the light of the world, he says. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the true vine. How about John chapter 1 verse 1? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was 
God. The word there is Jesus. He is God, and yet at the same time, He's man. Philippians 2, He humbled Himself. It's this weird mix, right? It's a mystery. Can we agree? Like if you're trying to like figure this out in your mind, good luck, okay? It's, it's a weird thing, but we know this. That Jesus is fully God, and the doctrine of Matthias is like, this is how we would put it, that Jesus is fully God, and He is fully man. And there's moments throughout the Scripture where He limits His Godhead so that He can fully experience that which you and I do, and much of Scripture confirms that. And this is one of those moments. Let's look at it again. Father, if You are willing... Take this cup from me. Now, what's a cup? Uh, not like a, you know, like a Walmart cup or something, but what, like what is he talking about here? Listen, in Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25 especially, you can look there later, starting in Jeremiah 25 verse 15, there's this long, lengthy section talking about the cup of the wrath of God. Isaiah 51 confirms this idea too. In other words, a cup is a figure of speech talking about how one, if they were to drink it, might participate in the proportion of something. So when Jesus says, if, if you're willing, take this cup from me, He's talking about the cup of the wrath of God. Now this is interesting. When He tells the disciples to pray that they will not fall into temptation, what, what, what's their prayer look like? Look at this. It's you and I's prayer. It's that we would abandon sin and claim hold of holiness. Are you guys with me? That's you and I's prayer. We abandon sin, and we become more like Christ. That's our, te- that's our fighting temptation every day. Are you guys with me? We abandon our sinful nature, and we grab hold of Christ. The temptation of Jesus is exactly the opposite. His temptation was to not abandon holiness and grab a hold of sin. When he grabs a hold of sin, he bears the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God poured out on Christ. And so in the fully God, fully man part of this moment, as the moon shone down and as he was face down, Scripture says in another place, that he was filled with sorrow, almost to death, Matthew and Mark say. In this moment, he says, if there's any other way. If you're willing, take this cup from me. Do I have to leave holiness? If there's any moment that you and I should be encouraged of what we're looking forward to, this is one of those moments. Jesus is saying, why do I have to leave communion with you to take this on? If there's any other way, I don't want to leave communion with you, Father. I don't want to leave this amazing... I don't want to leave it. I want to stay within it. Can you guys just, just get this moment? I don't want to leave... I don't want to abandon this and take on sin. And then He says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. What does Jesus teach us in this moment, my friends? He teaches us that we plead when we pray and we always submit ourselves to the will of God. It escalates the idea of prayer. Uh, Many people who uh, bear this uh, particular theology that um, uh, goes to this extreme, they would say that there's no need to pray. 
Because God is sovereign and He's working it all out. If Jesus is praying in the last moments of, of, of His life, don't you think that it's good reason for you and I to get on our face and throw down, my friends? So not for a second can we get confused about the concept. He calls us to pray so that we could better see and grasp a hold of the will of God so that we could submit. Now this is unbelievable, and this just opened my eyes again this week. James chapter 4, verse 7. I've always, I mean, I've preached this verse a million times. Not a million, you know, 99,000, whatever. James 4, 7. Anyone know it? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Jesus, in this one verse, shows us how that works. Submit to God, your will be done. Resist the devil. This is a cosmic proportion battle. Can I tell you guys something? My whole view of Scripture in the last couple of years has changed. I would have used to say, I would have, I would have used to, to say something to the effect of, when Jesus is on the cross, it's like Satan's greatest moment. Look, if that was Satan's greatest moment, then he wouldn't have come and tempted Jesus in Luke chapter 4. You guys understand, Satan does not want Jesus to go to the cross. You guys, are you guys with me in that? He knows what will happen with the cross. He knows the fate of Christ. And so this temptation... It's this cosmic battle of Jesus and Satan. Don't go to the cross. You don't have to do it. it. It can be done another way. But Jesus, submit to God, resist the devil, and what's the promise? And he will flee. We struggle submitting because we don't know his will. Because we're not reading his word. My friends, your eyes will be opened to submission of God when you begin to open the Scriptures and pray and plead that He will speak to you through that. We do a great job of complaining that we don't understand the Word of God and we spend zero time pleading that will open our eyes to it. My friends, Jesus shows us that when you march into the breath of the storm, you plead and you submit. How many of you guys tonight just haven't been submitting whatsoever? going your own way, doing your own thing for your own name's sake, Christ provides for us the greatest example. Verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. This is interesting to me. It's like, you know, angels are just weird. Can we just be honest, you know? I mean, they're, and I don't mean they're weird, weird, but you know what I'm saying. Like, you just, you think of like hospitals and gift shops. Like, that's what I think of when I think of angels, unfortunately, Right? But look at this. As I've been studying for this, like a new picture of angels have kind of opened my eyes a little bit. There's only two times in the moments of the Gospels where angels visit Jesus this way. Mark records that in that same moment of temptation I was talking about earlier, Mark chapter 1, that at the end of that temptation, an angel comes and strengthens him. Actually, it's angels. And then in this moment, after he goes through this significant moment of temptation... An angel visits him and strengthens him. Uh, later, listen to this, later we'll see Jesus as he's uh, talking to some of the high officials. He says, don't you understand that I could call down 6,000 legions of angels right now and all this would, would be over. There's a story in the Old Testament where one angel wipes out 118,000 people. Imagine 6,000 legions. Type, uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. But in this moment, the angel doesn't come to end the moment. He just comes or just to strengthen Christ. Verse 44. And being in anguish, 
he prayed more earnestly. Just when you thought the prayer was intense. Just when you thought he was pleading. Friends, this passage is overwhelming to me. He prays more earnestly. There's more to plead. There's more to cry out for. There's more for him in this moment to say, Oh God, I'm going to need your strength. He, play, he, plead, he prays more earnestly. And look at this. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't want to romanticize this moment for you. But I do want to mention this. This says like blood. Okay, we don't know if it was actual blood or just massive you know, pellets of sweat. When was the last time you broke a sweat praying? And I'm not talking about the mission trip when you went to Mexico and it was a hundred million out, right? And you were holding hands and you're, I mean, you know, you walk out and you're sweating already. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I've sweat before when I prayed. This is in the cool of the night, my friends. The cool of the night on a mount, no less. It's not 90 degrees. He's sweating because his entire Heart is laid bare. This is a picture of prayer. Your entire heart laid bare. Your entire moment to be honest laid bare in the in submission. But friends, when was the last time you even, you even began to broke a sweat praying? This is an earnest prayer. Now I'm not saying that we should all just go home and pray and say, oh sweet sweat, done. You know, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is this is a picture of godly prayer. Is there any better teacher than Jesus? Should we look anywhere else to learn how to pray? Anyone? The word anguish here is the Greek word agonia. Listen to this. The word means to agonize. To go through extreme pain and distress. Do you guys see the fully man part here? He is agonizing. I already said in the other Gospels... He was so sorrowful, almost to death. You remember Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 that we quoted last week. The scripture said in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, that he would be a man of, anybody? Sorrows. And here we see the sorrow of a God-man coming under the realization that he will be separated, briefly, yes, from God's holiness to take on the cup of wrath from God. Verse 45, when he rose, <laughs> I just could end right there because I, I love this passage. I'm sorry. Like you may be looking at me like, what, what do you, like what? No. Do you, do you see it? He's, on, he's been on his face, pleading, pleading, crying out, and then he stands up as if to say, it's now. Have you ever been so confident in the will of God that amidst that deep pleading prayer, you stood up and you knew that God's will was coming? This is that moment. He rose from his prayer. He's had his moment of wrestling, but now he rises. He rose from his prayer and went back to the disciples and he found them sleeping. This, we should all be like classic, right? Like this, this is no new news to us. I mean, this is what they do, you know? 
Just about the time you're starting to think, yes, Peter, James, and John in the garden crying out, he finds them sleeping. The other Gospels record this whole interaction three times. Jesus goes and prays. He comes, why are you sleeping? He goes back. Why are you, this, why are you asleep? Look at this. Uh, he asks them in verse 46, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. If it was important to say it enough once, now he adds a whole nother brink of it. I kind of sympathize for them, though. Anybody else? Now, I, I described the Passover feast to you guys like the 4th of July. Any, like, any of you guys like 4th of July? Okay, awesome. One of us, perfect. Freedom of America. Um, the 4th of July is this massive celebration where even oldies like me, okay? 28 years old, you couples out there, you notice that your bedtime progressively gets earlier and earlier, you know? In college, it's like 3 in the morning, and now for me, it's like 8, you know? I should be sleeping right now, right? Um, it, it be, just, like, just like the Passover, or just like the 4th of July, the Passover, you stayed up late, okay? It was a celebration. Like, people are all in the city, it's loud. It's just like the 4th of July. The 4th of July is one of those nights in America where people just, because the fireworks and everything. So look, they would have been used to staying up late. And we're talking midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning here. The scripture says that they fall asleep because they're what? Filled with sorrow. Can I, can I ask you guys something? Has there ever been a moment in your life when just the chaos of the world has just come upon you and you're just like, I just want to go to sleep? Because if I go to sleep, maybe I'll wake up and it will be a dream. Or maybe when I wake up, all of it will be better. As some of you couples in here, right? Like sometimes we argue like that. You're just like, man, if, okay, like I love you, you know, and you roll over. And it's just, it's just this image of maybe sleep will make everything better. So what does this mean that they're understanding? I believe it gives us a picture, friends, to what Peter uh, talked about. Remember when Jesus said, like, hey, uh, Jesus and Peter are having this interaction, and Peter says, I am ready to go with you to prison and to what? And to death, he said. And the key word there is, I'm ready to go with you. So Peter is clearly beginning to understand. They've just seen the betrayer be dismissed from the meal. They are beginning to learn. The scales are coming off that this is the end. Friends, look, stop romanticizing. Can you put yourself there as a disciple? You've spent three years with this guy who said he's the Messiah. And you've heard him say over and over and over, even though you really haven't gotten it, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. Now can you understand in this moment what you would be feeling, what you would be thinking? Your heart would be racing, and in this moment there's like, let's just go to sleep, because maybe it will all be gone. Verse 47. While he was still speaking to the disciples... A crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I've always struggled with the kiss. Anyone else? I'm not talking about like with my wife or something. I mean, just in general, like this moment, the kiss from Judas. Have any of you guys ever thought about why? Why a kiss? Like, is the kiss really ne necessary? You know, Jesus, he's right here, you know? Like, why a kiss? Listen, the kiss gives us some indication that, friends, A, 
Jesus didn't look so different than the disciples. Now, this is hard for you and I in you and I's romanticized view of Jesus, right? Right? Like, like his hair had these locks that glowed or something, you know? He was wearing his own, like, Yahweh shirt or something. No. All right? Listen, he, he didn't look that different from the disciples. And not just that, but Scripture says there was a crowd. And so by kissing someone, that, there's no confusion. Can we agree? There's no like, that's Jesus over there, and then they snagged the wrong guy. A kiss gets it done. And just about the moment that you're starting to disconnect yourself from Judas, just about the moment you want to punch him in the face, just about the moment you hate him, can you for a moment see yourself here? Listen to this. He uses the greatest sign of affection outwardly. And inwardly is just masked with selfish greed. Anybody relate a little bit more now? Outwardly, this kiss of affection. I love you, brother. Ancient Jewish times, a kiss. Friends and family. I mean, it was something special. But inwardly, just plagued with greed, knowing that he's going to get paid to do this deed. My friends, in this moment, we see why Christ had to come. In this moment, I see myself. I see my wretched heart with my voice saying, Christ is King, and with my heart saying, I'm better. And friends, in this moment, we see one of the greatest reasons why Christ had to come in obedience to the Father to save a bunch of wretched people who would always choose their own greed, who would always betray, who would always be about their namesake, my friends. Can you see yourself there kissing the Savior to betray Him? I told you guys a few weeks ago, you're all the betrayers. I'm the betrayer. That's why we need Jesus. That's why Christ walked into the breath and the mouth of the storm. Because God sent Him as a sacrificial Passover lamb to reconnect God and His people. In this moment, see your wretched heart and know that it's this wretched heart, in this wretched moment, that a king is going to go to the cross out of humility, my friends. Beautiful picture of Christ. Verse 49 when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Again, there's a substantial crowd here. This could be going back to last week when we looked at uh, the, Jesus telling them to sell your tunic and buy swords. And then they said, we've got two swords. And he's like, this is enough, right? So out of, out of just instinct here, he's like, okay, he's like, is this the moment that we should strike with a sword? Look at this, look at this, verse 50. And one of them, the other Gospels tell us it's Peter, classic, right? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, whose name we find out is Malchus, cutting off his right ear. Fishermen don't make good soldiers, okay? If any of you think he was aiming for his ear, alright? You know? It's like in this moment, Peter's like, sweet, I'm going to get it. his ear is the first thing to go, you know? No. He misses big time, you know? He's probably aiming for the throat. We hope not the heart. Then he's really off. Either way, right? Peter cuts off 
Malchus' ear here. Amidst all of this chaos. Now, what's amazing is like that they all don't die right there. I was intrigued by that. So it tells me, look at this, it tells me that, that either a lot of people didn't see it or it wasn't significant enough. Something happened here to not turn this into a huge riot. But there's something greater here, friends. Oh, and if we miss this, friends, I've, I've overlooked this moment so many times and I've read the scripture. Peter stops looking at Jesus. Is it possible that when Jesus told Peter to pray that he would not fall into temptation, it was like a moment like this. Pray that you'll not be a deterrent. Pray that you'll understand the will of God so much so that you'll keep your eyes on me. And if you were watching Jesus right now, what would he see? Jesus rising from his prayer. Another gospel says, another gospel says, Jesus said, look, they're coming. And he just walks. You get this image that he just walks right out to him. Jesus in the crowd, listen, Peter, in the storm, stops watching Jesus. And he turns to his own ambition. And what does his own ambition tell him? Fight. When Jesus has already said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. He's already told him to be like servants in this world. Listen, friends, amidst the storm, we must not stop watching Christ. He's all we have. His promises are all we have. And His will is the thing that guides us. At the moment in the storms in your life that you stop watching Jesus is the moment that by selfish ambition, friends, that you'll go awry. And that you'll miss the opportunity to be a voice of the glory and the triumph of Christ in your life amidst the storm. What does Jesus say in verse 51? Jesus answered, no more of this. So if Peter didn't know that he was wrong, can we agree that in this moment he knows for sure? He cuts off the ear. No more of this. I've walked into it. Isaiah 53 already told us that Jesus would not go against it. That he would take it on, friends. And look at this. I, this is unbelievable. And he touched the man's ear and what? If you and I are in the last moments of our life and we know it, I tell you what we would not be doing is this. And so it's in this moment where I just, I just sit back and I say, what a God. What a Savior. In the final moments of His life, He is still extending grace. He's still showing His triumph over the physical, over the spiritual, my friends. He shows that He's King. And the healing of the ear. If you're that guy, can we just agree? We don't get a lot of scriptural context about what happens to Malchus, but can we agree your life would never be the same? Hasn't He healed many of you? Hasn't He saved many of you? We can just speculate what, what happens to Malchus. But friends, amidst the chaos, we see that Christ still extends grace. Now, I want to I I talk to you guys about something. I feel like a lot of times in storms, we turn into self-preservation and woe is me. Anybody? When chaos happens in our life, difficulty, it's all about our own needs and our own troubles 
and our own worth and all of those things. Can we agree that in this moment, Jesus glorifies his Father and himself as he heals it? And so friends, look, I know that many of you are right now amidst troubles. I know that right now many of you guys are, against, are going through all kinds of chaos in your life. But can I encourage you with something? In those moments is one of the greatest times to be talking and reflecting the grace of God. And unfortunately for many of us, all the world hears is woe is me. My job is horrible. The pay is wretched. All my friends are leaving me. People are gossiping about me. Instead of through it all, God is enough. He's good. This is a phenomenal picture of a Savior, friends, who's whose example shows us the heart of God. Verse 52 says this, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? I, like, you had to be... I don't know, I'm, I'm not Jesus, right? Thank, thankfully. And in this moment... He just almost had to be laughing, right? He's like looking at all this as he's standing there, you know? It's like right now, I could wipe you all out with a little loop, you know? It could, just, it could just all be over. Like why are you treating me like, I'm re- like a rebel? The Greek, the better, is robber. And friends, who, which robber is brought up at the trial of Jesus? Anyone? Yeah, Barabbas. The same Greek word, robber. She's like, look, am I a robber? Am I, am I some, some sort of rebel? So why do you come at me with swords and clubs? This also gives us a great indication of the crowd size. There's temple guards. Those are the guys who probably have the clubs. They, they, um, they were around the temple. Okay, they were, Especially at this time of the year, they were taking care of all the sacrifices. There were officers here. There were Romans here. Listen, I need, I need you guys to understand something. When Judas was sent out, do you know all the things that he had to do? He, not, he, he didn't just have to get the Romans, but he had to get the high priest. He had to make sure that the, that the Jewish council was there. Like they were going to try Jesus politically, spiritually, religiously. Do you guys understand that? So when he goes out to do his thing, he's gathering all of these people, and those people are gathering all of their people. And Judas tells them, look, he might perform some crazy miracle, so you better bring the herd. And Jesus says, what? Have I come, like am I a rebel? Or a robber? Look at, look at what he says here. Verse 53. Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. I'm overwhelmed with that statement. He marches into the mouth of the storm. He pleads into the mouth of the storm. He heals into the mouth of the storm. He submits into the mouth of the storm. Our Savior stands before those who are going to arrest Him and before the one who just kissed Him in betrayal and says, take me because this is why I've come. And it's in this moment. It's in this moment that as a believer in Christ, I sit back and in my ear, I hear the words that He said to the disciples, 
Come and follow me. And I'm going to make you fishers of men. I hear those words in my ear right now because it's in this moment that I say, I want to follow you. Like I'm tired of following the world. I'm tired of giving into my flesh. I'm tired for allowing the stress and chaos of this life to determine who I am. I want to follow you. Because you always know what's best for your glory. You always know what's best for your name. And I am ready and want and desire to submit to all of that. It's in this moment that I get overwhelmed, my friends, with the Christ that's called us to follow Him. This is not worldly, my friends. And this moment should legitimize for you and I who Christ is as God and as man, unifying to be a Passover lamb for you. Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You won't look anything like the world. You release stress differently than the world does. You'll constantly speak of something bigger and greater. And inside of you, there will be a spirit that's that's guiding you, empowering you, and every good thing that you ever do will just because I've allowed you to do it. Come and follow me. Are you ready? Does the Garden of Gethsemane pull up in your heart a desire to seek after this Christ? It does in me. And I pray that this garden on this night reveals to each and every one of us how a Savior stood and said, Your will be done. Let's pray. Father, will you teach us that inevitable temptation demands pleading prayer? God, will you teach us that amidst the chaos of our life, we're to plead with you and submit to you? God, will you teach us that in the storms of this life, as you will, just like the disciples, throw us right into the middle of it, will you help us realize like you, as your son realized in this night, that it is for the communion and the glory of Christ. God, I pray tonight that you'll call up and that you'll rise up disciples in this room. That no longer will we be satisfied by our flesh. That no longer will we be determined by the world. But that we will say, what a God, I just want to follow you. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you call me to go, I'll submit. God, will you empower us beyond our means and understanding so that we may become disciples of you. Triumphant. Because you're victorious. Let's stand and worship.